My name is Eric Hundley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. So thanks for coming on, B.A. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited. Okay. B.A. You have different names, and you're going by B.A. Who's B.A.? Oh, it's it's covert. I can't tell you. No, I'm kidding. Um, so B.A. was actually a moniker. It's my pen, ni- pen name when I write. Um, and it's actually uh, nomenclature that my husband gave me. Um, and it stands, he used to call me BA and it was short for beautiful Angelina. Mm. So why did you go with the uh, pen name? Is it a, is it the routine of having the initials? So that way you're less gender identifiable as an author. It is, it is. So I, I had read somewhere, I forget where that about 70, uh, uh, percent of, of books are usually, particularly sci-fi books are, are usually written by guys and um, that women have a better chance of selling their books if they use the initials. So we okay. thought we'd give it a shot. But I like it, too. I, I like the idea of a bit of car- compartmentalization there. I always worry, though, that that's becoming so well-known. It's sort of like if you see initials in your in the phone book, you go, well, we don't use the phone book anymore. But at one point, if you saw initials <laughs> in the phone book, you'd be like, okay, single female, single female. <laughs> It, it yeah. almost becomes a yeah. a tell, and maybe it does. But but uh, I don't know. I like the ring to it. I like the idea of B A crisp. I just think it has a, a nice ring to it. It's short. It's sweet. It's you can remember it. So yeah, and Angelina's a lot of syllables on the. That's true, and you probably get, the mouth. <laughs> you probably get um, Angela a lot, or people can't quite get through to the end. That's well, it's true. People, <laughs> one of the things that, yeah, Ange, Ange, or, you know, Angela, or, yeah. So, and I do prefer Angelina or BA. Either one is fine. Okay. Well, now you have a pretty harrowing story in some ways, or I don't know if it'd be harrowing, but uh, it's definitely compelling. And you were on our mutual friend Randy's podcast. Um, Randall Kenneth Jones of Jones dot show and people on my show know Randy because he's been on multiple times and he likes to, well, he likes to torture me in interviews. Randy likes to talk, <laughs> <laughs> but I love Randy. I, you know, he, he is a, he's a, a friend and, and he's been a, a source of mentoring for me as I go along this podcast and writing process. So, um, yeah, he's super generous guy. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's been great, and we have some pretty um, intriguing discussions on a lot of topics. Now, you essentially, I'm going to skip past the early childhood, but you somehow found yourself on the streets at one point. I did. I, I do think that um, listeners do need to know just a small portion sure. of that without getting on the couch and on, on the proverbial jumping onto the proverbial couch with uh, Dr. Hunley. But, oh my! Uh, <laughs> but um, I yeah, I was raised as a foster child. Part of my childhood, I was a ward of the court, mm-hmm. um, and I was and and unfortunately, what that means is you wind up in a lot of different places, whether it's living with a relative for a short period of time before you go on to another mm-hmm. relative or whether it's going into a foster home, uh, uh, which I did. So, um, uh, when I was about 16 years old, I was tired of it. I, I wasn't happy. I discovered that I actually, the man that I thought was my father was not my father at all. And that's a a weird one. And I did want to ask about that. Why did you think he was your father? And how did that come about? Well, he was awarded custody um, of me. uh, So I was separated uh, from my mother, who was, and and we'll go no holds barred here. She was (laughs) institutionalized um, with paranoid schizophrenia. So uh, after she was institutionalized, my it was my grandmother who my maternal grandmother who finally went to the man that I thought was my dad and said you need to take you need to take responsibility and be accountable for your children. Um, so he it, it, I was I believe about nine years old when he was awarded custody and was moved out to a very remote farm, and uh, it turned out years later he was not my father at all, 
and it was uh, through the recent, you know, DNA testing. Oh, so he thought he was your father, though. I think he had suspicions. I think he knew because when I was 14, I broke into um, <laughs> I broke into a safe. <laughs> so I was quite a I was quite a rebellious kid, but um, I broke into the safe because I just had a feeling. I don't know why it was just something intuitive. I felt like a stranger among members, people who were supposed to be my family. I felt mm-hmm. like I felt like I wasn't part of them. There was just something off. So I broke into a safe and I actually found a letter that was written to my mother um, from the guy that was allegedly and did turn out to be my father. So that sent me on a quest that was not answered until almost a decade later. And then only recently within the last couple of years um, have uh, uh, siblings. And I think we're up to five now, but I think there's more siblings have reached out um, and, and found me through either ancestry or 23 and me. And I did join both because I wanted sure. to know about my heritage. I was curious. Why did he then? Did you figure out why he? I mean, that's a lot of responsibility. I mean, I hope it's not nefarious, but why? Why? Why the man took me in? Yes. Um, I think he. It was. I actually think it was community pressure. I think it was appearances. I think that he. Um, I. I you know, but he was always distant with me. He always held me at a distance. We never Mm -hmm. had a close relationship. Um, nice guy. I mean, everybody liked him and, you know, he was intelligent and treated us okay. And, you know, there was no exploitive, sexual abuse, physical abuse, anything like that. It was really more of a case of neglect. I was completely left to my own devices on that farm was driving at 13, was smoking weed, was smoking cigarettes, was drinking alcohol, was going to parties. <laughs> I was dating boy. I was having fun. So, you know, what happens to a rebellious teenager, but to circle all the way back mm-hmm. to, to uh, your initial question, yeah. um, I, I was getting bullied in high school and it was a, it was a very painful time. So I, remember the last straw for me i was accused of giving a guy was that for the girls it was the girls okay it was i wanted to clarify fortunately some very mean girls but it was one guy who launched it so back in the 80s it was not uncommon for a 21 year old guy to date a 16 year old sure and i had a neighbor girl who dated a 21 year old guy who mm-hmm. allegedly caught gonorrhea and told her that this gift was from yours truly. Oh, so I'd never been with the guy. He never touched me and I've never had an STD. Um, thankfully. Uh, so, so of course this just set off a firestorm or an avalanche of, of ridicule, castigation, uh, teasing, Cheers were made up about me at a basketball game. It it was extraordinarily painful. It was just, the bullying was just, it it was relentless. Uh, There were fist fights in school. Um, You know, I was, I was uh, expelled um, and no one thought to ask what's going on. You know, it was sort of this, you know, suck it up buttercup kind of thing. So I just left. I ran away. And, and, uh, no one bothered to look for me. So what I did was one thing I always like to do is read. And, mm-hmm. um, I discovered legal emancipation of a minor. And I discovered that in a courthouse at the local law. It was a Huron County courthouse at the local law, law library. And at the time, this is before copy, you know, copy machines and all that. So you had to transcribe, you know, that, remember that carbon, that paper, that oh, yeah. your, your fingers all, you we're know, close to the same age. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So so I would copy, I copied legal emancipation. I forged the paperwork. So I illegally, legally emancipated myself. I had a job. I had an apartment. I Mm. even had myself set up to go to a new school. What what was your job? I was a waitress. So I was actually waitressing at a truck stop and that's a liberal education. (laughs) So, And I worked night shift, but I was scheduled to to work like a second shift. I'd go from, I had it all figured out. 
And then I was right. remanded to the court system. Um, my grandmother again st- intervened and said she is missing. No one, but bo- no one but her bothered to report me missing. And why didn't you stay with your grandparents? Because my they had separated, and my grandfather was an alcoholic. Um, okay, uh, and he was it. You know, and his story is a little funny, too, because I, w- I want to talk about him. I l- absolutely adored my grandfather. Um, my grandfather worked. He was subcontracted to work for um, Plum- NASA Plumbrook Station when it was being built. German guy who was an electrical uh, engineer. And um, I would sit in his um, in, in his uh work area. And I, when I was little and, and I never saw anything um, off about my grandfather and he would, he would um, talk to me about, you know, reading and education and he'd give me things to read and he'd have me hold tools or whatever. And, and I just always enjoyed uh, my time, my time with him. So in later years, and as I reflect on this a little more, I think that my grandmother and they later got um, divorced, he died and, and, uh, and, and he had a wooden leg too. That was another thing. And always smoked a cigar. Great guy. But, um, Character. as I've aged, I've realized that my grandmother probably in, embellished his evilness a bit. So, um, uh, you know, I think he was, he was always good to me. I miss him. Okay. So to get me back on the trail, you got remanded from the state. Now, is this before, you were on the streets or after? This was after. So I was actually remanded by the county, um, and they had no place to put me. And I wasn't going back into a foster home because I was considered high risk um, that I would run away. So I was ordered to have um, psychological evaluations, which pissed me off because back then it was just an automatic that, you know, She's sick like her mom. She must have what um, her mom has. And mm. and there was a part of that that terrified me. Um, sure. You know, I didn't want to be labeled with that diagnosis. And I also felt that um, that most doctors were quacks and, and that they were going to label me according to their bias, according to their, um, you know, they would not be objective. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't the case. So I actually wound up with this Pakistani doctor, he was a psychologist who did the um, psychological evaluation and he never said much until we got to court and he and my, my county appointed attorney both said this should have been a case of neglect, not unruliness. And she could live on her own and that I was more psychologically stable than anyone in my family, which I felt was a bit of a vindication. So, um, but they, the judge said, no way, absolutely not. But he did put me in my own custody, but I had to go live with a wonderful family. In a, and I did go get to go to another school and finish out my school year. But boy, did I put that family through hell because what happens when a teenager gets a taste of extraordinary freedom? Mm-hmm. They're going to do whatever it takes to keep that. You can't and- tell me this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um Yeah. Yeah, but life on the streets wasn't easy, and I had some issues, and uh, there were things that happened um, that that I, you know, I wasn't. But these things reflect to now, well, a lot of what you do now. So can, it does. It does. Can we go into the general what you know happened? Yeah. So when I was 16 years old, of course, I I spent a lot of time at a place called Nickel Plate Beach, and it was summertime, and I love the beach. And I was there almost every day. In fact, at night, I was sleeping on the picnic tables under the picnic shelter because I had nowhere to go. So I would use the public showers. I would rely on the guys that were going out early in the morning, the fishermen, to, to for food or whatever. Then I used to go to this bait shop, and there was an old guy named Joe who since died. And I used to hang out, you know, and... And he'd make sure I got fed and stuff. And and I and back then it was kind of, it's kind of weird, but nobody was calling the police. Like, why is this why is this young lady alone? But I was. Mm-hmm. So I met someone who had a boat and mm-hmm. on the beach and thought he was this. Wow, you know, this is so sophisticated. Now remember, 
I come from a backwater hillbilly, you know, rust bucket beer swilling town. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so, no, no, so no. anything, sure. you know, I used to think that red lobster was the quintessential example of mm-hmm. fine dining. Um, and, and if I got to keep the lighthouse glass all the better, but, uh, uh, so I go to, I, I take a ride on the guy's boat and I never made it back to the beach. Um, mm, can, now can, can we back up and can you describe the guy? What was it about him that made you say, Hey, this guy's cool. Was he, was he funny? Was he, was he looking? He was charming. He, he was charming. Seemed, okay. He seemed smart. Um, uh, he was complimentary. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, introduce me to things that I felt were quote sophisticated. Now was this over time? Uh, Was this over a period of time or was it all the same day? It wasn't all the same day. It was over a period of time. Um, It was over a period of time. And, and then, um, and then he eventually said, now keep in mind, I'm 16 years old. He said, and he said, I want you to, um, you know, I, we need some money. I want you to um, I want you to sign up for this bikini contest. Um, mm. And I said, well, it's you can't go in there unless you're 21. And he said, I already have that taken care of. You're going to use this ID and you're going to go in there. Now, it wasn't a strip club. It was just like a regular right. bar. It was just a sure. regular, regular bar um, outside of Elyria, Ohio. And uh, and I went in and I was absolutely terrified because as brave and as sexy as you want to be at 16, you're still a sure. little girl. You're still a girl. And, uh, and, um, I was scared and I said, I, I don't want to do this. I, I can't do that. And I felt like the women up there, you know, there were women up there and mm-hmm. they were beautiful and they were confident and they were doing this of their own volition. They weren't being coerced. So he basically said, have this drink, have another drink, do this shot. And, um, the only thing I can remember really from that, well, I remember a couple of things. I remember, I remember I fell down on the stage and I looked over and I, I kind of remember he was, he looked embarrassed um, mm. because I had gotten so drunk. I couldn't walk in heels and I wasn't used to walking in heels. You're talking about a kid that wore flannel shirts and construction boots to school. Sure. So, um, so um you know, I fell down and then the next, and then I vaguely remember, um, I vaguely remember being a, a rape and, and that was, mm. at a, that took place at a different, that was, that was at his place. And, um, and I remember waking up and basically being told this never happened. And if you tell anyone, no one will believe you. Um, and, and then that led to, to other things. And if you don't mind, I'd like to. No, that's, that's perfectly fine. Now I will say this, I will add this. So what culminated in this was I had a, an outstanding English professor at my new school. Um, and, and I will not hesitate to say her name because I think she's, she still has an impact on me to this day. And her name is Marilyn Sands and Mm -hmm. Marilyn was the one she, she pulled me out of her classroom because she could tell something was wrong. And it was the, you know, and I have been diagnosed with post-traumatic moderate Mm post-traumatic stress disorder. So, um, she pulled me out of class and I lost it in the hallway and everything just sort of came tumbling out. And, uh, she was really good about being a mentor and a friend and a teacher um, with regard to ensuring that, um, I was being watched, I was getting help that Mm -hmm. I could process all of this. And most importantly, that my life wasn't over and I didn't have to wear uh, a victim label. Um, so she, which is good. How long, how long did he have you? Um, it was, it was about four months, about four months. So I feel, I actually feel lucky. I feel fortunate. Um, because there are young women who are that go that, that are victimized. Um, Mm -hmm. and they either a don't make it out or B it's, they could be it's years. So they go from being minors to aging out of the quote system and then they become, Mm -hmm. and then they become 
they're treated as criminals in some instances because mm-hmm. they've now committed criminal activity either by recruiting other young people and and then trafficking them or or you know stealing or otherwise breaking the law and and it sets up this cycle if you will sure um, and they never get the help they need so i feel very i feel extraordinarily fortunate that it was a very short period of time okay but it still obviously has lingering effects even to now um, um. i would say lingering effects in terms of being a survivor in terms of determination grit Can't have an admission candidness having a mission and a purpose so yeah yeah Okay, so then you went th- through high school and started out mediocre, and from what I understand, graduated pretty much on top. I mean, doing really, really well. Um, did not graduate on top. I actually graduated, I barely graduated high school with a 2.0 GPA, and um, I was cut loose from the foster system. So at 18, you're done. Um, okay. What I found in you, you won, you got your wish. Yeah, that's right. I got my wish. So you're absolutely right. Uh, But what I find particularly astounding now, and it's my understanding that this has changed considerably. So back in the mid 80s, I graduated in 1985. When you were cut loose from the foster system, they never taught you life skills. I couldn't run a load of laundry. I couldn't cook. I couldn't write a checkbook. I didn't know what credit was. All these things that you need to function in life, and excuse me, not polynomials, but how to function in life. I had no marketable job skills. I wasn't taught anything. So what that meant was menial labor. It meant either Mm -hmm. waiting tables or, you know, going somewhere else to to work. So, and I also, by the way, found myself pregnant um, and I Mm -hmm. had a little boy. I had a little boy to take care of. And, and you weren't, you aren't taught guidance either. There's no, you know, you're kind of left to manage. It's like, okay, go, go adult now. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I'm not the only one that this, that this happened with, but, but, um, uh, so I get out in the world and the only job I, I, I scored a job as a, um, as a kennel specialist at a pet land a, a mall petland store. So you had the little puppies hmm. in the cages and mm-hmm. I, and a kennel specialist, a kennel technician is a fancy name for pooper scooper. And, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that's what I did. And, and then I was promoted to assistant manager and, um, and thought that I'd arrived, but I was still making about $3 and 85 cents an hour. That's what mm-hmm. minimum wage was back then. And, um, and I was trying to, so every couple of weeks I'd get a paycheck and it'd be like, okay, what bill am I going to pay this week? Am I going to let the cable bill slide or am I going to let the rent slide? I have to buy mm-hmm. groceries and I couldn't quite make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Um, so that launched me into my next exciting career. Okay. <laughs> We're waiting. <laughs> We've got um, the buildup, and that was? So I have um, – Charlie is – she's still one of my best friends. I've known her since high school, and hmm. she she's absolutely gorgeous. So she's she, – in high school, she had this long, white, blonde hair, and it was natural, by the way, and big blue eyes. And, I mean, we I was so envious of her. It was not funny. She could just charm anybody, and she'd break guys' necks. So – she came into the store and she and took me to have drinks at the Holiday Inn at the Holodome. Again, another quote fancy place. Okay. And um, and I said, you know, I and I, I protested because I said I can't afford to have drinks here. And she said, no, no, I got you covered. So when she went to pay the bill, she pulls out all these dollar bills and she starts paying the bill. Mm-hmm. And and I said, wow. Um, where'd you get all that money? And she said, well, I dance and you know, I dance for guys and you could do that too. And I was mortified. I was like, what do you mean Mm -hmm. you dance for guys? And all I could imagine was she was in some sleazy motel room dancing before a guy with a stogie in his mouth and he's pawing all over. And that's, that was my, I didn't know what she meant. I'd never Mm -hmm. heard of these bars that you could go to. I'd never heard of an adult club. So fast forward, she says, 
right over to this place. There's a place here. You can go and, and I'll see if I can score you an audition. So I ride over with her. We walk in the bar and, and it's a bar. I mean, it's just got this little stage, this little pole and the guy that owns it on the weekends, he's a high school football referee, but he owns this bar. He's had it for years. I know. Right. So that's almost disturbing. It's like, I hope he's not recruiting. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. So he's still around today. I think he's in his eighties and I think he still has the club, which was, it was called the rail when I started there. And he changed the name over to the tea house of the dancing lady because he loved, he loved, um, Marlon Brando. And I guess there was Mm. a movie, uh, uh, similar to that name. Uh, or a, a tea house or something in the, in a movie at Marlon Brando's. So he, she scores me an audition. I'm totally terrified. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. And of course, and I still, uh, I still get honored to this day. She made me go first. I go into the dressing room. I have never put on a thong in my life. And there is a, a wonderful Vietnamese lady there named Soupy who gives me this little purple thong with dangling gold leaves. And I'm like, this might be something that you use to floss your teeth, but not something that you can wear, <laughs> wear to on a stage. So mm-hmm. um, I get up on stage and I do the robot. I do the twist. I do everything except exotic dancing because I don't know what exotic dancing is. And, um, I don't garner a single tip. And when I get off the stage and by then I've had about six shots for liquid courage and, um, I don't want to jump ahead, but I mean, you went through some abuse. Were you having problems with your history and doing that at the same time? No, I actually considered it a step up. So, um, not at the time you, I wasn't even thinking about that at the time. Um, it, It wasn't a, um, it wasn't like that. So um, I was a nervous wreck because I hadn't really ever performed in front of a crowd. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm really in, in, in retrospect, I'm just, yeah, I can do presentations, but I'm just not really a, an intrinsic performer. Um, mm-hmm. So, so um, anyway, I get off the stage and I ended up, this guy gave me $20. He had a suit on and he gave me $20 and he said, honey, I think you better look for another line of work. <laughs> So, and then I threw up wow. on his suit and I gave him his 20 bucks back. It was, <laughs> that was so embarrassing, but it, it was such a bad start. And then Katie, of course, or excuse me, Charlie got up there and she, she killed it. And, you know, guys lined up like velvet rope and they were tossing dollars and, mm-hmm. and, and, but I took a look at that and I thought, you know, if she learned to do this, I could do it too. And I, you know, and I don't, blame anyone for that business. For me, it was a stepping stone, not a tombstone as hard as that might be for listeners to deal with. No, no. Um, you know, there wasn't society, there was no legislation passed that said, let's give foster kids, um, job growth opportunities or let's fund an education. You know, it was sink or swim doll. And, and, you know, we don't care how you do it until I started dancing then everybody cared and nobody wanted me to do it. And this is objectification and this is degradation and this is exploitive. And how could you? So it was never that. And I, I want to make this very clear. It was never the stripping that mm-hmm. made me feel degraded, exploited or victimized as much as it was being emotionally unsupported by people who were supposed to be family and friends. And you never felt objectified. All your customers are perfect gentlemen. And there were no, no I'm not problems. saying that. I'm not saying no, I'm just, that. <laughs> but, but what I am saying is that um, to me, an empowered woman is one that does as she damn well pleases within the limits sure. of the law without force, fraud or coercion. And I wasn't okay. experiencing any of that because at the end of the day, you really do have <laughs> the control. If you're in a good club, you have control of, you know, who you're dancing for or with. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, you can walk away from that. You don't have to do that. Um, and I had a pretty good experience. And contrary to popular opinion, most of the people that I met in the clubs are more Christian-like than people who claim to be Christian in terms of their generosity, their insight, 
they're mentoring. Um, you know, for example, I met a banker and he said, pick my brain. It's free. It's free. You need three things to succeed in life. You need cash, you need collateral, and you need credit. And mm -hmm. if you're 19 years old and you can put away $300 a week and you only have to work four days a week and on a conservative 10% return on your investment, by the time you're 35, you can retire with $2 million in the bank, live on about $269,000 a year, and never touch your principal. That was intriguing to me. And I can I can see that. And I wasn't trying to judge you either way. I'm, I will push sometimes. What I find is you probably found people who were, when you say more Christian, it's an interesting choice of words. Mm -hmm. I was thinking maybe just more honest or well, more forthright with who they were or what they were, because you're in a sort of environment that everybody knows, well, they're not here to read a book. Right. They're genuine, I would say. They're genuine. Even if you don't like to hear what they have to say or how they act or how they choose to live their life, yeah, I would rather hang out with um, examples of light than bullhorns for hypocrisy. And unfortunately, sure. I, r I ran into a lot of that. Um, you know, people who never tried to understand the other side. Now, I met a lot of people who did, but I ran into mm -hmm. people outside of the industry. It was just castigation, just complete castigation. And that's their right. They have a right to their, their opinion. Um, but don't, you know, just as I wouldn't impose exotic dance on them, I don't want them to mm -hmm. impose that on me. And we all grow. And I haven't, the other thing too, is I'm not going to apologize for it because it, it is part well, of, should you? yeah, it, it's part of what it, it, you know, it makes me who I am today, you know, not above you and not below you, but right here beside you. So, and that's well, I, how I tend to look at it. Ironically, I've I've had a couple porn stars on too. Mm -hmm. um, one of which is uh, Rebecca Love, mm -hmm. and she she did the typical route of cocktail waitress, stripper, porn star, then mm -hmm. shifted to Skinamax mm -hmm. versus that, which isn't really porn anymore, and does video and things. But she talked about how what she's doing now is stand up comedy. And she feels far more vulnerable doing stand-up comedy than she ever felt stripping because when she was stripping, she felt like she had more power. But with the stand-up, she's more vulnerable. And, I, and I'll tell you, I felt more, more vulnerable um, in corporate environments than I ever did uh, working at a club. Um, you know, and I, I, I realized very quickly there is a lot of politics and even in politics, which I do now. So I, I, I'm a policy and research analyst and, 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 you know, we can get to that later, but I do other, other things. So, sure. um, but I have encountered more misogyny, uh, and more sexual harassment in the corporate environment than believe it or not, I ever did in the adult club environment. And I think that's hard for people to believe, but you really are. Uh, There's clarity there though. Yeah. There, there, there are in um, average strip club, very clear rules and dictates from what I understand. There like, have to be. People are allowed to do this or not allowed to do this. This is acceptable. This isn't. And in the corporate environment, I think there's a whole lot of mm, fuzziness. And, well, we go to the HR meeting, but we don't necessarily do it. And it, it's a, it's nowhere near as clear and succinct. In a strip club, somebody acts up, they get thrown on their butt. Yeah, they get thrown out or the dancer walks away or, you know, you make a choice uh, or or and, and, and humor diffuses a lot of issues, too. Um and, and I think both in a corporate or in a club environment, sure, you can sure. use humor to diffuse a lot of issues. So, you know, and I found humor to me or even gentleness. So I, I discovered from owning a club, and that's another story, but, you know, you can diffuse a situation just with the touch of a hand on somebody's forearm. You don't need to punch them in the face or slap them. You can, you can diffuse it with a touch and, and, uh, um, you know, I think that works. That that speaks volumes. I, I actually want to go that way, though, because okay. uh, I, I mentioned that Rebecca Love, she went, everybody seems to have their own cycle in the um, industry. Like Rebecca Love did the cocktail stripper porn on. Um, 
another one I've had on Jocelyn Stone was um, a swinger and just got into porn. Never stripped as far as I know. What is it that made you go the route from what I understand? I guess you were stripping and then you ultimately ran the club and then owned one. How did you go from stripping to owning? Well, I think it follows. If if you take a look, it follows the same path as most people. Um, Mm -hmm. You age, you get you gain experience, you gain education and things change. I once asked a reporter who was interviewing me um, for it was about a policy. It was about um, a legal policy. And I said and she said, well, how should I um, how should I describe you, you know, to the, to my readers when I, when I write sure. this. And I said, as a research analyst and, and, and I, and she hesitated okay. and, uh, and I said, Oh, you want to describe me as a former stripper, right? Because that's what all reporters want to do. And mm-hmm. I asked her a question. I said, I said, if I were the CEO, if I were a male CEO of a fortune 500 company, and I used to be a Chippendale, would you describe me as CEO of IBM or would you say former Chippendale? And she said, actually on that one, they say former Chippendale. I, I believe <laughs> that, that one. I, yeah. that is- well, she said, uh, you got a point. So, so anyway, we, we, gr- so we, we grow. So for me, it was just sort of this evolution, if you will. Um, it got to the point where I made the choice. I don't want to really dance anymore. I'm not, I've done it for years. I enjoyed it. It was, but now I, I want to be challenged with something else. And that something else for me was, okay, I can manage a shift. And then it went from managing a shift to, okay. to um, parlaying that into co-ownership of a club, which is mm. what we did. And then, you know, and then there were a lot of clubs that were opening up in that Cleveland market and we then we had to differentiate ourselves. So with the help of a guy who's still a, a dear friend of mine that I just absolutely love, um, his name is Slim, and he owns MAL Entertainment in the Carolinas. And at the time, he was working with Penthouse on licensing agreements. And hmm. we had a conversation, and I got in the car, and I drove to New York, and I would not leave until Bob Guccione gave me the first penthouse licensing agreement and um, mm. and said I was an extraordinarily stubborn woman. And this was two months after 9-11. So we had the licensing agreement. Um, we operated under that penthouse licensing agreement, uh, rebranded ourselves and operated under that licensing agreement for approximately a year and then turned around and I said, you know, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore either. Um, I think it's it's time to find something else. So we sold the club to Larry Flint's people, and it still hmm. exists to this day. Um, well, Bob Guccione, um, for people who don't realize, he not only ran Penthouse, but he also did Omni Magazine. Mm-hmm. He was not a slouch. No, and I and I love Omni Magazine. So um, yeah, I've read a lot of really good good stories in there um, about technology, about biotech, about sci-fi stuff. So I, I find that magazine very intriguing. Okay. So you essentially then built up, I'm guessing a very nice nest egg and then went into your second career, picked up a couple degrees and not light ones, correct? That's true. So while I was still in the club business, I did uh, attend Ursuline. Well, first I went to Cuyahoga Community College and I earned an AA, uh, magna cum laude, um, from Cuyahoga Community College. And then I parlayed that into Ursuline College. So before I was another English professor, I love my English professors. How old were you at the time? I was mind? older. So I was probably in my 20s. I was probably in my mid-20s, I'll say. I was in my mid-20s, not probably. Okay. So I, I went to... Um, I went to, I was leaving my English lit class at Tri-C, they call Cuyahoga. And, um, and, and it was Elizabeth Lipton who stopped me and she said, you know, have you thought of a bachelor's? And, uh, I said, I I can't afford it. And by this time, by the way, I had two kids now, so I was having a lot of fun, but, uh, um, so she said, um, you know, I think you should consider that and, you know, maybe Ursuline college. And I thought, there's no way in hell I'm going to Ursuline College. That that is going to be too conservative. Too, I had this whole the swirl in my head of, oh yeah, I can just imagine how that's going to go. 
turned out to be mm-hmm. one of the best experiences of my life because I will say this, those nuns know their shit and, and they were extraordinarily intelligent, extraordinarily insightful. Um, we would have some great discussions and I ended up graduating uh, with a degree. Um, it was a Bachelor of Arts degree and it was liberal arts school. So a lot of humanities. Mm. And um, I graduated summa cum laude from Ursuline College. Um, nice. Yeah. And I and I was I was pretty proud of that because I. I and you were still stripping at the time, right? I was at the time. What, I was kind which of. Is a, this is a script of in of itself. Yeah. Because, <laughs> so, you know, the, well, the stripper was, at the Catholic school, right? It was funny, too, because <laughs> I had a I had a one of my um uh, Dr. Lombardi was my uh, humanities teacher and she just was great. And I said, she, I had written an essay and I won a scholarship and it was going to be presented mm. to me at a mansion called Villa Gwyn. And all that, that old baggage came back to haunt me, not in terms of what I'd done, but in terms of all the flack I took from people saying, Oh, why did you dance? And I thought, I can't go to this dinner and accept this scholarship. Mm. You know, what if I walk in there and somebody I dance for is sitting in there and what, what I can't go in there and tell her what if somebody knows, or, you know, I don't want to embarrass mm-hmm. them. And, and she, so I, I wasn't going to go. And she called me and she said, what in the hell is going on with you? And I told her, I just said, look, here's the deal told her and she, she was very silent and I thought, Oh shit, I'm done. And, uh, and she said, how wonderful that you dance to your own steps and you don't have to follow a male lead. Now go get that damn scholarship. I was thinking too, okay, let's say you did see a customer who's more embarrassed. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I mean, you kind of both, you know, I guess. (laughs) Right, but it's it's kind of a a weird quandary because you're both out of place in that moment, and well, it's out of context. Nobody's seen anything. Sure, it's out of context for sure. So, Um, and then after Ursuline, um, I went on to uh, the George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, and um, and. Now that was a few years later. That right? was a few years later. Okay. So, so um, <laughs> you sold the club, and then that's oh yeah, when sold you did the club, the, uh, and yeah, and uh, opened up a little uh, kind of a boutique place in the Washington D.C. area, and mm. I was their co-valedictorian out of four hundred students. So nice. by then I wasn't. I was, you know, I hadn't danced for a long time, and I was really sure. into political science and. Po- lot, you know, politics, mostly not so much politics as much as policy and sensible policy. So, um, and then well, I, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That leads into what you are doing now, or at least one of the things you're doing now that I want to discuss. And that's, you are working on, I'm guessing policy for, or anti-human trafficking. Yeah, so policies and programs. So one of the things um, that I discovered when I was uh, when I started this was that a lot of the data on human trafficking is bunk. It's just not true. Okay. In some cases, I think people just pull it out of their ass and run with it. Um, and the other thing that I heard was that strip clubs were the major purveyors of human trafficking. Of sex, particularly sex trafficking, and really? that you know everybody in a club is being all dancers in a club are being trafficked, and all dancers are victims. Um, and then something caught my ear, and that was I had learned that under the TPVA, which is the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000, there are mm-hmm. some instances where NGOs, non-governmental entities, or organizations like charities who help victims cannot get their grant money in some cases unless they sign a piece of paper that says they will not differentiate between legal sex work and sex trafficking. That, to me, is egregious and a disservice to true victims of trafficking. Is this tied in with that stupid, well, I'm going to say stupid because the way I interpret it was a bad move, where they made the um, online forums illegal, which a lot of sex workers were using to check out potential customers. Backpage and you're talking about a law called FOSTA and SOSTA. That's it. So 
or SESTA, FOSTA and SESTA, I think. So the law enforcement officers, and by the way, I'm married to somebody in law enforcement, and I mm-hmm. am a, a vetted volunteer for a law enforcement agency. Okay. So um, when when you talk about, not, I'm a civilian volunteer, I got to make that clear. So um, okay. when you talk about, um, uh, I'm sorry, Eric. You were ta- we were talking about sex trafficking, and I lost my train of thought. Um, oh, that's fine. Well, I'll back up because yeah. you had just mentioned that um, everybody has to sign in order to get grants. Yes. That all all sex um, sex work of any kind is evil. Right. I'm guessing is a, right. a way to put it. So then there's this. Then what I discovered too was that there was this. Um, there was just all this competition between these NGOs who try to out-conservative one another in order to get limited amounts of grant money. There was a huge duplication of efforts. And then what they did was nobody thought, and I thought, well, you know, they're telling me that sex trafficking is so rampant in clubs, but there's no program for it. There's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what is the data saying? So and instead of looking at the data, I let that go for a minute. And I thought, all right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do my own little, focus group and and do a query and ask people in law enforcement, people in um, NGOs and, and elected officials, do you think strip clubs are major purveyors of sex trafficking? Across the board, without a doubt, they said, yes, 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 absolutely. So I thought, well, what is sex trafficking? I don't think I really know the answer to that. So well, maybe- that, that went against your anecdotal experience, didn't that? Well, hold on. So it did. So, so it. So I thought, hmm. All right. Well, Len, if we are a source of the problem, and this is definitely taking place, I don't know anything mm-hmm. about it. I started asking club owners. They knew nothing about human trafficking, and I thought, well, maybe our clubs are just rampant. Denzians of crime and criminal activity and all these women are being trafficked and they're not telling us and people need help and we all have families and we're community members. So why Mm -hmm. not look into this? Well, I started in graduate school with the help of another law enforcement officer. I ended up creating a program called COAST, which is known as Club Operators Against Sex Trafficking. So Mm. we, we, went to various uh, agencies such as the FBI and other agencies who said, absolutely not. We're not working with these people. And I, I thought they're curious and I'm like, well, if they're part of the problem, if you're telling me they're part of the problem, wouldn't you go where the problem was? Wouldn't you mm-hmm. allow them to open up their doors? So even those NGOs who are absolutely insistent could go in there and just look in every crack and crevice and corner for human trafficking victims. Um, so eventually, and to their credit, it was Homeland Security Investigations who said, you know what? We want you to come to DHS headquarters right now. So I go to DHS headquarters. Thankfully, there was a blizzard that day. And we got, so the Honorable Alice Hill was a captive audience. Um, and she was Janet Napolitano's general counsel at the time. Okay. And we laid out the program and she was dead silent. And I thought, Oh shit. She hates us. She hates this. And, and finally she says, I love it. And she looks at her agents Mm. in the room and she says, you give her what she needs to make this happen. And she did. And what I really like about Homeland Security investigations is they have it and not to be confused with ICE because everyone confuses, confuses them with the immigration arm. And mm-hmm. that's not what they do. They're the second largest law enforcement agency on the globe. They do investigations. Mm-hmm. They have developed a victim centered approach to human trafficking, which I think is brilliant. So they actually have these uh, uh, victim victim assistance specialists. So the first Mm. thing that they believe is safety of the victim is the most important thing. Food, clothing, substance abuse needs, if they, you know, counseling, et cetera. Um, and, and a whole host of, of, um, and I've met a whole host of wonderful agents. So they lead the trainings. I don't lead the trainings. I act as more of a mediator between the clubs and, um, and the workers in those clubs and federal law enforcement. I was going to say, so do they train the, um, the managers and employees at the club, what to, what to look for? Yes. So the indicators of human trafficking. Um, and what would those be really quickly? So as, as far as a club related, so what, one of the biggest things that we did discover 
um, as we were doing this was it wasn't that the club owners um, were, were, you know, selling girls for sex. That just wasn't happening. They weren't trafficking girls. They weren't trafficking girls. And everyone said, oh, there's little, there's underage girls and blah, blah. But what was happening was that there was an ignorance and there were some clubs not doing due diligence on mandatory age verification. So you had Mm. some, some young ladies getting into clubs, just like I got into a club um, Mm. way back when with very good fake IDs. Um, so that needed, that was a legitimate concern that needed to be addressed. And we addressed that with policy that we supported in Florida, which mandated that every adult club in Florida had to train, had to hang anti-human trafficking posters. And they had to verify the validity of an ID and keep that on ID Mm. on file and open to inspection by law enforcement at any time. The state of Louisiana man- took it further and mandated that all um, all adult uh, club workers, whether they're a dancer, a chef, a house, whatever they do within a club, um, they have to have twice annual um, coast trainings. So, uh, and then the and then hmm. the city of Houston mandates annual coast training. So it's been a really good um, and effective program, and. Uh, and then um, we got a lot of blowback. So, and actually, I think HSI got a lot of blowback. And somebody complained, and they wanted, and, and they they wanted to and blowback from which direction? Um, I'm not sure. I, I'm pretty convinced it came from NGOs, um, and I think there's a reason for that. So, the 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 blowback was, how could you? Oh, this is a terrible thing. The optics don't look good, and we weren't waving banners. I didn't want any kumbaya mm. moments with. So they were saying, "Oh, the government is now supporting strip clubs." Yeah, what is basically, wrong with you? is how they. That's how. That's how the spin was put to it. And Coast was never a pass. So the federal agents, you know, they're not having kumbaya moments with club owners. This, this was a training and education program with community Mm. members, just as HSI does with other community members. And it's the last time I checked, they're all U S citizens. You know, the, the resources are there for this training under the blue campaign. So if you're saying the clubs are a problem, why couldn't they participate? But then I hmm. discovered, then I discovered what I think is the real issue, and that goes back to data. So, so they started passing, you know, or trying to pass policy that said, you know, no federal agencies can work with with you know adult entertainment in any capacity, and da da da. And it was like, all right, that's fine, but you know this and. And they're not working with adult entertainment. They're working with a nonprofit. And our, the purpose of our goal is saving lives. Our goal is saving lives. So the, the legal teams agreed with that on both sides. Um, but what I did then was I, I was pissed. <laughs> so when you get me pissed, I'll run data. So I took all of the states, or excuse me, all the way back to 2014 when the FBI started keeping uniform crime reporting statistics on sex trafficking, I aggregated mm-hmm. all of their data, all the NGO data, all the Polaris data. And, and then I discovered, and then as I was cross-referencing everything and doing my research, I discovered, Oh my God, the people who are telling me how to behave and the people who are telling me how I should comport myself are lying. So is that the example I should follow? I don't think so. So what we discovered was sex trafficking in strip clubs was actually less than 1% of the human trafficking issue across the U.S. I I was going to ask, was it always less than 1% or was your program so effective it knocked it below 1%? And that's a great Uh, question, Eric, because I would like to think that Coast maybe had an impact, but I don't think it was high to begin with because what, what... law enforcement people would tell us is we don't think you guys are the problem, but we don't want the blowback you know, from the NGOs or the elected. I was wondering officials. about that. However, in this industry, let's be frank, one victim is too many. So, oh, oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and, and, you know, and the club owners have been great because they're like, okay, well, we're not going to tell you we're policing ourselves. Um, so, you know, let's let the agents come in and, and, 
they can do it. They can do their job. So, and that's really what's happened. So I wrote this paper called show us your data. And it's my understanding that that paper made it to the state department. And then I was called into another meeting, um, with a science and technology agency who was looking at, um, a foundational effort on human trafficking. And, um, and what, what we noticed in the matrix was that they were lumping licensed strip clubs with illicit, not, not the science and technology department, but NGOs were, were lumping mm-hmm. in some federal, in some law enforcement agencies, they were lumping illicit cantinas, illicit massage parlors, licensed mm-hmm. strip clubs and pop-up strip clubs and other, other, and this is how they describe it, other venues. And then they put it all under strip clubs just to get it to the 1% number. So it's oh, probably Jesus. Le- less. And well, I was going to, I, can I make an observation? Sure. It would not seem, well, although it's a sexualized environment, it would seem to be maybe too open for a true trafficker. I mean, it's like, I would think if you're trying to traffic and sell somebody, you probably don't want a banner. You probably don't want to advertise yourself too much. You're not going to open it up to the public. And, and we have, you know, I actually have worked with church groups who go into the clubs and, um, and they quote witness, you know, and that's to me, see, I'm under our constitution and the freedom that we have in the U S I'm all for that because that's a, a message of expression and speech. So, Oh yes. If somebody wants to go in and they want Mm -hmm. to talk to dancers, if they, if the dancer wants to pray with them, I'm fine with that. Good. Uh, you know, but I'm saying but, it makes no sense for a trafficker. That's right. And that kind of to goes be back there. to what you're saying, because if, if something were going on, they wouldn't be welcomed in there. You know, those groups wouldn't be welcomed in there if they're being trafficked. Um, and, and it doesn't help the bottom line on business either. I mean, and again, being candid, if someone comes into a club, a licensed establishment, that's already right. under, I always, the joke is in this industry that they're under more scrutiny than nuclear power. So, oh, yeah. um, so if someone comes into a licensed club and they could be shut down immediately. Um, they for they would be, it would never, well, maybe not immediately, but it would happen because you can't well, bottom line, but the, but the they could lose the liquor license. Well, not only, all kinds that's of right. Stuff. They got too much to lose. And if you, in being candid, if you give someone a happy ending inside a club, Mm-hmm. The, the club's not making that the club's not making money and they're putting everything at risk, everything. Right. Um, and that's when I went in, I said, this taxonomy on these clubs has to change because you've got licensed legal clubs that are protected under the U S Supreme court um, as, as free expression. You've got these licensed clubs being lumped in with all the solicit activity. And if you take it out and you change the taxonomy, to skilled labor under entertainment and hospitality, you get a whole new animal. So, and, and a lot of people don't want to see that who are getting grant money, who are duplicating their efforts because now you've mm-hmm. infringed on their potential resource so they can pay themselves big salaries, ride first class, stay in fine hotels. And, and, I, and believe me, I'm not saying that every NGO is like that. I would like to see NGOs who really do one hell of a job like Path to Freedom who provide direct victim services to minor victims of sex trafficking get into that arena where before they're elbowed out for, for the big guns who really are doing, they're, they're just repeating this education and awareness. And that's Have you worked with Deliver Fund? Pardon me? Deliver Fund? Have you worked with them or heard of them? No, I haven't. What is that? Okay. I think they're an NGO. It's it's another um, sex trafficking. It sounds similar to your um, the one you mentioned. Was it our um, ourrescue.org? dot org? Deliver Fund, I think, and they have Navy SEALs oh, and CIA I have people. Heard of them? Yes, and I love veterans. So um, yeah, and and I think they go around, and I'm really. I think they may be international and may. Yeah. Yeah. And our rescuer operation underground railroad, I really, um, you know, I really have a, um, heartstrings for that, 
that charity because they rescue little kids in some pretty horrific environments. Um, uh, yeah. So I actually met, um, I think it's their CEO or their, no, I'm sorry, their director of operations, John lines. And I met him through, um, uh, a federal agent. Uh, and I, I think John does a hell of a job and, and, uh, uh, you know, I just think that organization, you know, they've had growing pains like we all like coast had and, and, uh, mm. but I, I, as long as they're really helping victims, I'm, I support that. Well, to, to wrap things up, because I want to leave on a note, it's sounding like strip clubs really aren't the problem. And with that, what is the problem? I mean, what is the hot spot that the audience should really start looking at? Maybe writing their senator. Where is the biggest hotels? Actual problem. Hotels. Hmm? Hotels. Hotels. Yeah, and the hotel chains. You know, it's bad PR for them. They do not want to be um, purveyors of. They don't want to be viewed as purveyors of sex trafficking. But unfortunately. That is where the most sex trafficking usually takes place, according to all of the data that we have collected. Um, is this no tell motels, no, or is this going this, all the way up to the holiday? Up, all the way up to big to big chains. Now, I am very mm. proud of the Marriott because they took the initiative and said all, our all of our employees will um, be trained in human trafficking indicators. That was a huge step forward because before they would just close the door. So I would say for everyone that's listening, you know, just keep your eyes and ears open. Um, and there are indicators that you can look for. Um, for example, in the club, you asked me a question I didn't address. Um, if someone else is holding someone's documentation, if someone else is speaking for them, also look mm -hmm. at dress. Traffickers don't always have to be men. A lot of traffickers are actually women. Mm. Um and, and, uh, and, you know, that woman may be more finely dressed than the, the well, Epstein kind of shows us that, doesn't she? Doesn't he? Oh, I mean, his girlfriend. Yeah, allegedly. Yeah. She? Yeah. So that'd be interesting to see how that winds up playing out. So, um, yeah, it, it, you know, bruises are, an, you know, they talk about bruises and stuff, but a lot of these young ladies su suffer from Stockholm syndrome. PTSD or young men too. And that was the other thing that, that we, you and I touched on, you know, there's young, there's male victims too. And I think they really have it um, even more difficult because there doesn't seem to be as many services available for young boy victim or for boy victims and for a, even adult male victims. And we, we sure. talked about, you know, some of the, um, well, and shame is um, yeah. a good thing to keep them quiet. Yeah. It's very useful for a trafficker. Yeah. And if someone isn't socializing or they're not allowed to go anywhere or they don't want to talk to you or if they have a ready-made story. So, um, uh, I know you and I touched a little bit on, uh, you touched very, <laughs> for a short moment on the CIA and, and, but the, these victims are often given legends or cover stories that they're told mm -hmm. and they're just drilled to stick with that legend. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it's, they could be anywhere. They could be in a hair salon, a nail salon. They could be in church. We've had victims in churches. We've had victims in, in private homes. Those victims are the hardest to find because it's an invisible crime. And I also get right. why licensed strip clubs are used um, as, it, you know, they're propped up because it's easy to film in front of. It's easy for a politician to stand in front of a club and beat his chest mm -hmm. or wave a banner. And it's easy for NGOs to protest. So, it, you know, I, I understand why they do it. I just think that they're they're off base when they do. And I think they they do a disservice to, vic to real victims of trafficking. Well... Where can people reach you to find out more? Um, they can go to um, empowermententerprises.com. Uh, um, uh, I would say I would say go there. So, okay. Well, and they also can go to bacrisp.com. They can go to bacrisp.com. I didn't know if we were going to bring up the book Red Bird, but um, of course, yeah, well, you have a book, a book that is semi-autobiographical that kind of describes your journey well, with another it's character. Fiction. It's, fictionalized. It's, it's definitely fictionalized. It's based on true events. Um, it's a fictionalized <laughs> version. It's a, it's a composite version about a protagonist who is a um, recovering human trafficking victim.
Excellent. And I hope you get it out on audiobook. I will be. I will be. Thanks. So it's going pretty well so far. Um, it's part Excellent. of the series. So. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Eric. I really appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Laughter, tears, celebrities, newsmakers, anecdotes, and recipes. Wait, I was wrong. They don't do recipes. You can't hear food. Join host Randall Kenneth Jones, a man who is not the original cowboy in the village people, and announcer Susan C. Bennett, a woman who is the original voice of Siri, every week on Jones.show, a podcast so accessible, its name is a web address, www.jones.show. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. 